I'm Sarah Ruffi, the woman warrior lawyer, and my guest today is Philip Ransom. Phil, could you introduce yourself and briefly tell what you do? Hi, I'm Phil Ransom. I am a writer and a speaker. Um, my specialty is working with executives, business owners, uh, ex uh, nonprofit executive directors, people who are fully aware that they need to communicate well, but many times they don't have the time because it does take time. And every now and then I find someone who just hates the process, so they call me and I help them get their, get their good word out and uh, save them some time in the process. Well, and it might not be that they hate the process. They just have uh, other things that are taking their time, right? There have been two that just, I know I need to write well, but I just hate it. So help me, you know, and yeah. Or how about, how about those of us who do an okay job of writing, just don't have the time to finalize it. Well, that, that's where Dwight was when I first met him was, you know, he just, he asked and I gave him a shorter version of that little thing. And he goes, that would be us, <laughs> you know? And uh, so, yeah. So let's, let's actually talk about that a little bit right from the okay. start. You and I have known each other a number of years. And how about if you share how we actually came to meet? Okay. Since it is quite an entertaining story, it is. And it talks a, about leads to a shift in your life as well. Right, right, it does. Um, we moved back. Brenda and I moved back to Wisconsin in January of 2014, primarily to be close to family. Um, her mom was a widow, living north of Green Bay, um, and pretty lonely. We had a daughter who was in the Greater Milwaukee area, and grandchildren were arriving. Brenda and I were a thousand miles away, which meant a four hour trip to Denver to catch a plane and then a flight to Milwaukee and then either a big drive and it was just not a good thing. So we moved back to do that. Um, a whole string of events, which is another hour long story, but I was I took on a part time job with a financial advisor in Brookfield. And one of the things that he did every year was to go to the Wisconsin State Bar Solo Small Firm uh, Conference. And I came along to help him to, uh, to, so we could talk to two people at a time. And one day there was a gentleman in the booth talking with my boss about a possible life policy. And so I cleared out and I went out and stood in the main area of one of the high boys and Dwight went by, he struck up a conversation and you know, who's this guy that you're helping and, and all the rest of this. And so what do you do with the rest of the time? So well, I write for business owners and executives who are busy people. They know they communicate, need to communicate well, but they're just so busy. They haven't got the time. And he goes, that would be us. And we uh, talked a little bit more. He had to go on his way. He was speaking. And uh, later that day, he introduced me to you. And I think we went for dinner that evening and got got acquainted, discovered you had a book you were in the process of working on. And, and my response when Dwight said, I found your editor for your book was, now I need to write it. <laughs> okay. So you, you're an editor, not only for my book, but you've helped other authors get off the ground. Is that right? 
Yes, yes, there are three more now since since yours. What got you into being an editor for for people? Um, being willing to help somebody uh, with the process. I the reason I went into the, the the line of editing that I do is because I didn't want to uh, to go through the the formal process of being recognized and edited by traditional publishers. It just seemed to me a whole lot of hurdles, a lot of things that may or may not be all that important, a little bit of rebel sneaking through there. Um, and so the, the do-it-yourself process has always been appealing to me. Um, so helping somebody else, uh, primarily because they're busy people and sometimes, you know, you need someone else's eyes to look at what you're doing because, uh, I don't know how many times I've proofread my own stuff and read right past the same typo or the same grammatical again. Somebody else picks it up and the first thing they see is what I've been filling in the blank on. So uh, just, I love to help. I love to influence. I haven't taken on every project that has been offered me, but if I believe in the the message of what's, what's being uh, presented, then yeah, happy to help. So what kind of books do you edit? So far, they have all been self-published. Um, the the one I did for you, of course, was Be Happy in Both Worlds. Um, the next one that I agreed to is Lou Tetlin's book, uh, The History of the Brain. It is about the same size as yours, but a little bit bigger. But this one was different in that she is, it's full of illustrations and pictures and all of the rest, which is a different kind of a cat to edit. Basically, it looks at man's interest in the brain itself from the Stone Age up to the year 2000. And uh, I agreed to do that one for shared royalties because we were both just getting started and, and all of the rest. And that was the next one. Uh, in the process, somebody learned that I was doing those two and asked me if I would help them. And I said, what's your book about? And they said, God at work, being a person of faith in the workplace without being one of those that just drives people nuts. And I said, okay, let's have a look. And I agreed to do that one before I looked thoroughly at the manuscript. She got a bargain. <laughs> and hey, Phil, then, yep. I want to take just a break for a couple of seconds. Okay. And get some light on me. Okay. I don't like how dark I am. Okay, sure. We can start. We can turn. So before we took our little uh, technical highlight break, you were talking about. The third book you were asked to edit being about God in the workplace and a little more than you had anticipated. What what? did you learn from that experience? I learned from that that I must look at a manuscript more than a passing before I agreed to do the work. Um, The author had told me, she said, I know I'm wordy and all the rest. And so, you know, you'll you know, get the knife out and, and that sort of stuff. And I said, okay, I can do that. 
but she had a couple of other quirks which she would if she was sitting here she would agree and that she switches verb tenses like this which is it's it's very time consuming to fix because you're taking and you're moving the sentences all around and you know and all the rest and did she happen to use passive voice to boot nobody uses passive voice <laughs> i didn't yes. think so <laughs> everywhere um but to her credit when we got all done my invoices come with the ability to tip and she gave me a handsome tip at the end of it awesome it huge, which helped bring bring the thing around and uh, and then she turned around and said i want your i want your help with the cover too and format you know so uh, so the callback and the referral are my two biggest compliments and that was that was sweet well and now the most recent one that you're working on happens to be one of those referrals being really nice you're welcome yeah you bet and it seems to coincide to a certain degree with your third book yep she is she's working on or she it probably i don't know i haven't talked with her in a couple of weeks but it should be at press if or nearly so um and that was the the process of growing old on purpose or with purpose uh, a lot of faith content in the book and uh, but at the same time she didn't want to just be in your face with it you know she wanted to weave it into the process and so uh, that was that was fun. I agreed to do a a thorough review of the book because my original quote for doing it was high, quite high, and I you know I recognized that. Uh, but what I did, well, and I learned she had been that work had been in front of three editors already. So I said to her, I don't want to inadvertently undo something that you've already paid somebody to do. Let me do a review of your book using Loom. Are you familiar with Loom? Loom shows you screens and I'm, the picture the, oh. is down here in the corner. So I just paged through her book chapter by chapter, section by section and said, here's this, you know, she could see my mouse moving around. Uh, you might want to think about this. You might want to think about that. Uh, I think I ended up with 27 five-minute videos. I was going to say Loom is a five-minute video, right? Yeah. I've since gone with the pro version, which you can go longer, but it's a five-minute. So I would set set a timer that I could see, and then I would talk, and when I got close, I would say, okay, we're about out, and I would close it and uh, put all of the links to that in a spreadsheet with some keywords so that she could look at the spreadsheet and say, okay, this is about that. This is about that, you know, and then that. So, and she came back and said, can I cite you as an editor? I said, uh, sure. Thank you. So yeah, it was, it was a sweet deal. Well, and I, I know I referred her to you because the editor she was working with wanted her to change her book so that it wasn't religious based. Right. Because that editor had a different religious belief. Yeah. So my, that's not the editor's job. It is not the editor's job. But I looked at based on your religious belief, 
that and your ability to look at the material and your background in SID, which I want to get to next. Okay. Because that was your first book, right? Dealt with SID, or is that different? The no, the first. The history of the brain, but the isn't that the that same? Was the Yours was first. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> of course I was. <laughs> <laughs> but knowing how how you did with my book and your your religious views and that you're not in your face i thought you guys would be we have and it's been good good so let's talk about um sid a little bit sid stands for cognitive based information design c i d um I first came in contact with it. Well, I had gone to, here's an interesting, we'll back, back into it and then come in. In uh, January of 2016, I went to a meeting where I heard a former rider trucking and leasing VP talk. Um, and he had a captivating story. Uh, and he came to the end of things. It was for a career-minded group, people who were either looking for jobs or looking to improve or move up, that type of thing. And he said, so when you don't know exactly what to do next, don't overlook a dream deferred, even for a very good reason. Because understanding that dream will tell you a lot about what you're willing to go through what you're willing to aim for, how high you're willing to aim, and how rich and rewarding it'll be when you finally see it come about. Well, I had been looking, looking, looking for all kinds of things. I didn't hear anything else he said. My mind went back to some events in my life where writing was just, oh, I love this. Um, one of them was, I was a junior in high school, walking down the, down the hallway, and I Guidance counselor said, Phil, I need to see you. You're not in trouble. Come here. I need to see you. Went into his little office and he said, you are the first in the state of Colorado to ace the SAT creative writing section. There Congratulations. Will be you are the first. And I said, oh, that is sweet. And then he tried to talk me into majoring in English, composition, et cetera. I said, no, I've got it all figured out. I'm, I'm doing the music thing. Never mind. But that was a moment that just made a huge difference in my life. And I began pouring it on with the, the writing and stuff in high school. In college, my freshman year, I had a, co a vocal coach who was working with me toward, would be all the way toward my recital. I was a voice major, but he also taught one of the other academic classes. We got along famously, but I could not pass his tests. So I went into him one day and I said, Mr. Rose, what, what is, teach me how to study for you. No, I'm not going to do that. He said, you are writing really good papers. You're participating in class. You're doing the reading. I'm going to say to you, don't stay up all night studying for my tests. Pour yourself into the papers. You do that and I'll make sure you do well. And because he knew how, he knew his tests were ambiguous and you know that sort of thing. So I think probably what he needed was Sid. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Anyway, I wrote him really good papers. I got a D minus on the final exam and a B minus in the class. 
my papers saved my neck, you know. And it's lots of other things where, you know, I'm a fan of Garrison Keillor's early stuff. I did a lot, I have 10 series, a series of 10 Thanksgiving Eve events that we did in churches I served, where we did them in a style of Prairie Home Companion. Um, and the monologue was where the message would have been. It was just, so I came home, I verified it with a couple of people there. And then I said, came home and I said, Brenda, I'm going to quit looking for jobs here and there. And I'm going to start looking for clients. And this was after the writer meeting. It was after the writer talk. Yeah. Um, and when was that? That was in January of 2016. In the, I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, then I need to belong to a writer's group. My son helped me find one, and I went to one. And the very first meeting, the person on my right shared a portion of a paper that was going to Visual Language Journal. She said, I'm not happy with how this flows. It's just, it seems really, so she read, and as she's reading, I'm thinking, yeah, that's a little awkward. That could be smoother. But it was about how the eye and the brain treats visual text and what happens in the brain when we read. And I'm going, that's what happens when I read. Seriously. I was, just, I was taken with it. Uh, that was in February. By July, I knew I wanted the certification for it. And I approached her and got my certification in November of 2016, just in time to help her with a big event for Perinet. They're a big group down in the Milwaukee area. She presented well, um, but she, when we were talking about it afterwards, she said, I don't like it. I do not like presenting. I said, why? She said, I'm reading a research paper a day, Phil. And to go back and introduce people to this is like going to first grade, first day. I do not like it. So I earned the presentations, uh, certification and now I'm the one introducing people to sit when we have the ability to have group meetings. <laughs> so. Well I think you've also gotten pretty good at doing things virtually haven't you? I think I've seen you yeah. sprinkling things out there. Very reluctantly yep um, just partly because as, as with my experience I know the difference between being in person and being virtual. Um, when I'm on stage, and you know this too, you can go from being a total stranger to somebody coming up to you at the end of things, you know, after after the event and saying, we need to talk. Oh, yeah. From stranger to potential client in about 35, 45 minutes, you know, and I really, I really like that a lot. So. Well, I like the energy that you can feel in the room and you can read all of the nonverbals yes. when you are physically in the room, but you don't necessarily get that when it's a picture on a screen or worse yet, just a little black square with their phone number uh -huh. and you have no idea who you're talking to. That's really hard. So I want to go back to the, the January of two, 2016 when you had your aha moment and okay. exit stage left <laughs> kind of accurate isn't it yep it is take a take this exit no this one <laughs> <laughs> what did you do what were you doing for a career when you walked in to that presentation 
I was working half time for the financial advisor and I was looking for other things that would possibly replace it or be full time. You know, I was willing to do a composite of things. Um, that position with Ralph was kind of a, that's a steady, that'll keep the bottom line, that'll flatten out the, the financial valleys, you know. And, but smooth the curve. Yeah, keeping, keeping things on an even keel. But I was looking for you know, leadership, executive director kinds of things, paid board member, you know, uh, within the nonprofit realm primarily. But um, just didn't know what it was. Was it October of 15 when you met Dwight or was it October of 16? October of 16. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Isn't it? Ah, uh, you never know where life takes you. <laughs> so now you also talked about like your history and your involvement in, in your church and the theatrical part of it, yes, is I mean that's what I'm going to call it because it is you you do you bring it to life and and not just standing up there lecturing people. Mm -hmm. How did you get involved in in that process? It was um, we have you know in churches and I was in conservative churches. Um, you have these seasonal things that you do primarily Christmas and Easter. And there are companies who send you volumes, samples, and they want you to listen to the CD, page through it and say, yep, that's what we want to do and buy their product, 30 of them, 40 of them, however big your choir is, and do them. And I would go through those and it got to the point where the music was really good, but I just could not handle how they got from this song to the next song. The narrations were using these same old phrases, some of them trite, some of them really threadbare, um, that kind of thing. And so one year I said, this is the work we're going to do, but I'm going to write the transitions. So in, in that setting, I had, you know, the, the musicians were all up here, and then I had a music stand behind me with my narrative text, and I turned around and read and then I would turn back to the musicians and we would keep going and I was shocked at how well received it was so then the next year I didn't buy the book I was said I want that song and that song and that song and that song and here's what we're going to do you know um, and over time it became the church I was in, in here in southeast Wisconsin there was a lady in the church who was really good at directing the dramas so she and a small team would write the dramas. I and then she and I would work together on where the songs fit. And at one point, we had a team of 140 volunteers working on our productions. Uh, That's coordinating a lot of people. It is. In 1997, we had a guy who was coming who had a production company. You know, when you go to shows, he had the big projectors and the light bars and the curtains and all the rest. We wanted to do an outdoor, uh, start with an out, a video uh, depicting Mary and Joseph traveling outdoors. And we knew where a donkey was. We knew where a camel and sheep were. So we were going to go, we photographed or videoed these off site. And he did that for us. 
And on the way back, he said, Phil, I've got some other equipment we might want to take advantage of the night of for image magnification. If you've got people singing here, you can put their, their screen, you know, their image big on the screen. Sure. He said, uh, I don't have a budget. He says, no, I would want to, this, I would want to do this for you. So we did. And the more we did, the more involved he got, the more excited he got. We had two great big video projectors. I swear they were half the size of a Volkswagen bug <laughs> in the balconies cross-firing like this. And I said to him one day, I said, Brad, this is a lot. You know, we can write you a receipt for the value of goods and services given if that would, he says, let me check my with my accountant. This has been a really good year. That might be. I might back. need the donation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He came back and he goes, okay, are you sitting down? I said, on the inside, I am. He said, good. And he took it out of his, so far, what we've given is, would be worth $67,000. He said, but I'm loving it. <laughs> so it just goes to show it's not all about the money. Oh, it isn't. He was, he was like a kid in a candy store. Just, you know, yeah. The, but that's how the whole thing got, just seeing the audience be receptive to it and they were meaningful, really meaningful. You mentioned that you went to to school for music. Uh-huh. And in, in the, in your church, you were, it sounds like you were in charge of the music. Right. Did you actually graduate with a music degree or did you graduate with something else? I went to a school that at the time compared themselves to Denver Diesel and Automotive, where you didn't come away with a diploma, but the school you went to had a 95 to 97% higher rate. So I graduated with a diploma, but not a degree. And I was in a church within six months of graduation. And that was what you had wanted to do was work yeah, in churches? To do. I mean, the, the music part of it. I mean, um, there were people at the time, this would have been in the late 70s, who were saying, you really need to be offering a degree. You really need to offer a degree. And they were saying, Denver Diesel and Automotive doesn't. They come out with certification from this school and they're there. People want them. And it's okay. Um, since we're since the conversation just going wherever it wants, we were in Tucson, Arizona. I had gone there to do one thing, which didn't mature, didn't materialize. But I was helping the church that we went to, and we were members there. I was helping them get ready for their first ever minister of music. It had been a purely volunteer thing, 800 people, high-powered volunteers. When the time came, for them to, to call their first guy, they set the bar. You had to have a bachelor of music, bachelor of BS in sacred music, knowing that I didn't. Ouch. Yes. I didn't like it. The senior pastor didn't like it. Um, and there was a guy came up to me one Sunday and he said, say, Phil, I saw your resume the other night. Is that the one you're sending everywhere? I said, yeah, because I have a company that helps people with resumes. I'd like to help you with yours. Gratis. May I? I said, yes. Oh, okay. 
I said, what? He said, just make me one promise. I said, what's that? He said, don't send that resume anywhere ever again. I said, it's that bad? He goes, no, it's just been that long. And he taught me how to do a targeted resume, which now has become another kind of. I was going to say, now don't, that kind of goes along with citivizing documents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it does. It does. So the senior said to me when I learned we were going to the Chicago area, he said, there are some great schools there. Phil, get the degree. Don't let this happen again. So I went to my favorite school in Chicago and I said, I want a bachelor in sacred music. What you, and they looked at my transcript and they said, it'll take you about 125 hours. Uh, no. I'm full-time church, Christian school. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I don't have the, no, sorry. And I just let it drop. I was at a music conference a few months later. And I said to a guy from another school, I said, so what would it take to do a Bachelor of Sacred Music with you? He was at Judson at the time. He goes, didn't you go to Grand Rapids? I said, yeah. You graduated? Yeah. He goes, don't ask anybody about a bachelor's. Go in and ask about their master's and they'll tell you how many hours you're short for a bachelor equivalency with them. So being the guy with a little bit of an attitude, which I said, I went back to the very same guy, very same desk. And I said, talk to me about your master's program. And he looked at the same transcript and he goes, you're 15 hours short of what you would need. I said, did you say 50 or 15? It was one five. Hmm. That's a little different than the first number he gave you, isn't it? It really is. So I got, and I got to pick what I wanted. I picked all writing courses and editing courses um, you know, and had a great time. But isn't it interesting how no doesn't necessarily mean no, it just means not right now. Not right now or not there or not you, you know, but yeah. It's, there's always some other something. And have you found that, because you've already shared a number of stories where other people interject and offer to help uh -huh. and it, it changes the, the pathway or it, it moves your path along in your journey. Yes. So, when people come up and ask you, you know, can I offer some advice? When that first happened, how receptive were you to take the advice? At first, way, way back. Well, my mom has in her cedar chest a fourth grade report card that says on it, Philip does not respond well to criticism. And I say tongue in cheek, and I'm still trying to prove her wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so that is there, and it's always there. But there's this another tier of recognizing that person knows something. That person has some experience. I'm not going to live long enough to make all these mistakes myself. So if I can benefit from what you already know, then that's going to be that's going to be great. And, and I choose consciously to let them influence me. Um, in fact, the book that I'm working on, 
I signed something in your presence in October of 2016. They said, I will yes, buy such and such. Well, that date has now been moved to April 18th, 2021. That's the new drop dead date as she writes it down. Yes, sir. <laughs> but it's about influence. And that since you and I were uh, there together in 2016, 2019, I guess it was, wasn't it? It was. The book has, has changed just a little bit and now it's now three pieces. The first part is people influenced me. I'm adding a second section about people that I know I have influenced. And one of the, a couple of those chapters, the people have written it themselves and they're dropping it into my book. Um, and then That's a the great idea. section is about inviting people to be willing to intentionally influence other people for their good. So, Being servant leaders. Yes, right. How have you changed your personal and business life to create your ideal life over time? There are two things that come to mind right off the bat. One is recognizing that I have never been, nor will I ever be in total control. That's huge. Okay. Um, I used to, figuratively speaking, map everything out. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I mean, and ask God to initial it. And he just doesn't. Funny um, how that works, isn't it? <laughs> just, he probably sits there and laughs and takes it like this and goes. Two points. <laughs> so that's one. And the other one is there's always something in process that I don't know or don't recognize until later. So I have to be open to, to that. Um, I use the word picture periodically of when you're going down the expressway and you know where you're headed, it doesn't really matter if you're on the right in the right lane, the middle lane, or if you're trying to go seven to 10 over in the left-hand lane. That's not going to affect where you go necessarily, but you don't want to miss your exit. Okay, and so you've, you've got to be alert, but the enjoyment of what's happening while it's going on is, is huge. So uh, there are certain minimums that need to be established, and there are other things that are just entirely flux. One of the things I has, have changed in the last five years is that my immediate family knows very little about my business. Why is that? That's because they still see me as I used to be. They can't see what I'm seeing. And is, is that by choice that you haven't shared or is that simply because they just don't seem to be overly receptive and as excited as you? Well, there's a combination of that, but when you, when you see, you know, you, you, I try out an idea and I get this dial tone, old word, uh, this, <laughs> I don't get it. You know, I'm thinking, you know what? I've spent a lot of time crafting this. I know where, uh, so I just, rather than bother them with it or letting them criticize, well-meaning criticism, of course, uh, say, no, that won't work. That won't work. Uh, you need to, you know, I just say, no. 
that comes from an event, another story. I was in a meeting one time where the gentleman knew what he wanted his business. He was actually uh, leading a church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and he knew where he wanted them to be. They were meeting in a theater, tried to get his banker to see and hear, and the guy wouldn't, wouldn't give him a nod. So one day he took him for lunch, and on the way back from lunch, he goes, hey, let's go, I'll just drive, let's just drive by the, the property that I have in mind. They got out of the car and were walking around and he was saying, no, this would be here, this would be here, and this would be here. And this banker is looking at him going, you can see this whole thing in your head, can't you? And he goes, yeah, you yeah. got to see it before you can see it or you'll never see it. I think Walt Disney was that way. I'm sure he was. Yeah. Actually, I think when they opened, is it Disney, Disney World that's in Florida? Mm-hmm. When they opened that, a reporter went up to Mrs. Disney and said, asked a question in terms of what would he think seeing this come to life or seeing this for the first time. And her response was, he already saw it and that's why we're seeing it. Let me so, tell you another one. This is a, a, a rancher friend of mine. He's been dead for a while now, but he had a huge ranch. This was out in Western Nebraska. And he wanted a small plane to check the water for his cattle. And the bank. That would be a huge ranch. Yes, it was. It was thousands of acres. Okay. And his banker said, no, that's not cost effective. No, no, we're not going to, we're not interested in that. He said, I don't want a big plane. I just want one seat in front of another and a small hanger to keep it out of the elements during the winter. No, no. Well, one day the rancher, the, the banker went out to the ranch. They were working on some financial reports. And this guy being the rancher independent mindset that he was says, while we're here, Let's go check water and cattle. <laughs> How many hours later did they get back? Well, when you're riding in the pickup and the rancher's driving, guess who opens and closes every gate? That would be the banker man. Uh-huh. They got back to the ranch and he goes, come How much did you want? <laughs> Cost effective? Absolutely. You know? And uh, years later, it got to the point where the, the cattle would hear the plane coming and they would all run toward the windmill and it made it very easy for him to count them. And he was you know, back at the ranch in much less time. So anyway, you got to see it before you can see it or you'll never see it. And uh, the vision, when I take some of the, the uh, one of those tests, I forget which one it is, futuristic is the first one on my, on my roster. Oh, like the personality I the Gallup, test? I think it's the Gallup Strength Finder. Futuristic is my first one. Go figure. I can see that. What, what would you advise as a pathway for aspiring editors? Um, or I'm sorry, aspiring authors. Aspiring author. Other than to use you as their editor, but I, I know that there are particular styles of books. Yes. that you want to do i would say read 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 in the genre that you want to write in so that you're familiar with what's being done um write every day even if it's junk 
Okay, you can always turn a junk draft into something, but you can't turn nothing into a finished product. So you've got to be. Practice makes perfect too. Yeah, or permanent. If you're writing poorly, you'll always write poorly, but you you want to get it out there. Okay. And then the biggest of those three would be, I would say, don't be married to your own stuff. Don't don't fall in love with what you've written. Um, it's just it's you've got to be a better rewriter than writer to be a good writer. Um, so, or not take it personally when somebody else reworks yeah, your materials. Exactly. I, there was one day. This has been a few years ago. I was sitting across the table from a business owner. She had a website. Uh, her business was finding long-term nurses, high-end nurses, and physicians to fill in absentees, absences, and leave of absences in other places. So she would, you know, if they had a like a six-week opening or a four-week opening or a whole quarter for school or whatever, she would find the person to replace that person while they were out, and then they would come back. And it was and she approached me to help her with her website. She said, because I'm finding that my website is being re read on cell phones while they're walking. I mean, this is pretty tight copy, but it, I need to shorten it some more. So we were working on it. And I, I said at one point, I said, so based on what you told me, this doesn't apply anymore. Yeah. And I lined through it with my pen. You just crossed out your own stuff. So, yeah, I'm not married to my own stuff. I mean, you just, so you have to be at it to trim, have to be willing to trim, to cut, uh, to, to find your final draft. Very true. Now, I want to shift gears again. I okay. know that we have talked in terms of you have a goal for a revenue stream uh -huh. and you had mentioned moving back to Wisconsin because of your mother-in-law and her health challenges and I know that Brenda has some of her own health challenges yeah so putting those two are still on the plate <laughs> trying to juggle everything and your goal is to have a certain income stream that gives you the flexibility to take care of your wife and your mother-in-law. Tell me a little bit how you're making that balance and making it happen. Still working on it. It's always a work in process. Still working on it, yes. Um, one of the things, <laughs> that influenced me big time in that first process. And I, I can only remember one of the authors, Steve Sloan White uh, worked with another author. The book, I, I like the content of the book better than the title. It was called The Wealthy Freelancer. Um, and there, one of the things they said, which helped change one of my paradigms was you need to gain experience charge accordingly as you're getting experience but the minute you have it you change your rates so you're ratcheting up ratcheting up ratcheting up ratcheting up and they said and if a client ever 
buys what you suggest without thinking about it, it's time to ratchet it up again. You're not charging enough. You're not charging enough, right? You know, and so it uh, that that played into it. And then another thing that they suggested, and then other people have well as well. They said, don't ever charge by the hour. Work by the project. And at first, that didn't make any sense because as you're telling a lawyer who bills by the hour. Well, and there's a reason why you do. Okay, um, it's it's you can clock it, and it's they don't question you when you come back and say this was this was how many minutes, and this was the you know yeah. and this so that it's all justifiable. They're not, uh, but with a project base. There are two things happen to me as, as the one who's working on the project. One, there is great incentive to do a good job the very first time. Because then your per hour equivalent goes your up. Your profit margin's going up. Yes. It also makes it worth staying up when this whole thing has gone south. And I just need to get this off of my desk because I'm not going to work for a nickel an hour, which if I stay on this track, I'm going to, that makes it worth it getting it, getting it done. The first time I really sensed that was a, a I was working with a Granville Business Improvement District, a suburb of, a Northwest suburb of, of Milwaukee. And they were having trouble getting people to come to their quarterly banquets. They had like 98 member business members, uh, member businesses, but they couldn't fill a room with 40 people for a quarterly banquet. They just weren't showing up. So it was my job to write a three email blast to encourage them to come. And I used in the emails, like half of it was emotive, pulling on strings. And the other half was Sid, here's your information. Okay, so the first one went out this way. The second one, I put this information on the top and did a different story underneath it. And a day or two after the second went out, the second email went out, the executive director called me and said, Phil, don't send the third one. We're full. By working by the project, I got paid for three, but I only had to write two. That was pretty sweet, and I said, "Okay, there you, there you go." You know, and it also was a testing ground for the power of Sid. Yes, it really was. And most recently, uh, the the one that I did for for Margie, the book that I did, I said to her when she asked me to work with her on her cover, um, I hedged just a little bit, but I said, "Here's what I'm going to do when I quote you. I want the number I give you to be high enough." that I'm being compensated if it takes us four or five tries to get it. But if we do it in such a way that it's you know, first pass or so, it doesn't seem extravagant. It's still, you know, so I'm looking for that sweet spot. And you know, I ask 45 million questions on our way to whatever, that's all designed to shrink the, the bullseye. But I sent it to her. She made two or three quick changes, and we were good to go. So she got a good value, and my per hour equivalent looks pretty healthy. 
you know, so that working by the project is is one of the things that, that really helps. It's just a matter with 2020 being what it was, we took a major hit in that regard. Well, and I think working by the project, because you ask so many questions, it really isn't, it's getting to know your audience, getting okay. to know your target, okay. clearly understanding your parameters and what they're looking for. So when you talk about narrowing the bullseye, you're going for the trifecta or not the trifecta, what do they call it? The turkey when you get three right in the bullseye when you're playing darts. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that if you don't ask the right questions or enough of them. That's right. So how have you learned to ask more of the right questions to narrow down that bullseye when you're working with clients? First, I tell them up front what I'm doing. So this is where I'm going to ask you more than you think I probably need to know, but here's why I'm asking those questions so that I know what I'm aiming at. You know, and I tell, it's, it's a foreign idea to them. I tell them a little story about the guy who was going down the highway and he saw a barn with arrows and, you know, in bullseyes on this, and he stopped to, to see if he could meet the youngster who was so good. And his mom said, uh, no. He's nothing special. He shot the arrows at the barn and then he painted the bullseyes around him. No, he's not. And that's not what I, I think. Mean. That's brilliant. <laughs> if you're the kid. Exactly. That's <laughs> called resourceful. That's right. That's right. And it got somebody's attention. So if you know what you're hitting or aiming for, that really, really helps. Um, and it has to be objective. Um, Writing in somebody's voice, which is pretty important as well. Um, you think? Yes, it really Some clients is. might be a little particular in that regard. Some are, and I, I love it. I really do. Um, one of my early examples in 2015 was an executive director who was working on an annual report for her nonprofit. And um, in fact, you might have even seen this piece. Things got so busy. And we met at Panera to go over the rough draft and the executive or the, the president of the board had written uh, a short letter for the report, which pretty much matched what the executive director was gonna say. So I said, well, let's just make yours a thank you. At the, you know, we got so busy, I didn't, she didn't get to it. And when she looked at the proof, she saw her little picture and then she saw the thank you next to it. And she looked up, direct quote, I like what I said. Thank you. <laughs> I wrote it for her, but it was in her voice and it sounded just like her. And I, at that point, I thought, that's marketable. Um, so you learn those, those things and you, uh, you make full use of them. And have you come up with like a system of particular questions that you ask? Almost like a checklist to, to understand your, your client? To get the client's voice? Yeah. Uh, not the voice. I ask for three or four emails that they've sent out, or if there's a, a white paper that they've done, send me a copy of that. Um, early on, I would try to write in their voice, but as I've gotten more clients, I don't try to do that anymore. I write good copy 
and then I inject things that they would say at appropriate points so that it rings, so that it rings true. It's so, just too, too labor intensive to try to get into somebody's head, you know, when you're working on three or four projects during a day, you know. I totally get that. Yeah, I bet. What is the best piece of advice that you've received so far in your life? Probably, I'm a quote guy, so this is a stretch, okay? Um, but I would say we will never see perfection in this life, never. But excellence will be seen and recognized for what it is every time. So aim for excellence. Don't stay up late trying to make it perfect because it just isn't going to happen. I like that. Yeah. So Phil, how do you define success? Success to me is positively influencing people that I know, people I care about or want to care about, groups of people even, uh, to see that influence while at the same time taking care of my own needs. Uh, the, the money isn't the big thing, but it's important. But I, I can live for three days on a solid compliment, you know? So, uh, what do you consider a solid compliment? Something that's genuine, that's accurate. Um, accurate to whom? To both of us, really. Um, if you know, there were a couple that came back from you as we were working on "Be Happy in Both Worlds." That uh, just they meant a lot. So, yeah. Well, you're so welcome. One of them. <laughs> I'll, I'll What's that? Your listeners would be interested in knowing. Um, when we got ready to do that, I really wanted to do your book. And as you recall, I asked if I could do the first three chapters at a reduced rate. Because that was the only way that you would know that I could actually handle, one, someone who's an attorney, two, that I could do justice to a woman writer. And... and that I'm a control freak to boot. You know, so when you wrote, when you came back and you said, I like what you've done with my material, can I just give you the bullet points and some of the stories and you fill in the, the rest? I think you wrote what, two of my chapters? Yeah, two. And then the, there was a third that was heavily influenced. There were some big gaps and I yep. dropped stuff in. But I said, that's ghostwriting, Sarah. That's more expensive. And your next comment was a huge compliment. It was not in the long run, it's not. Because the book will be out, it will be influencing people and I will be able to, and I'm thinking, this is huge. I mean, that was like, mm, you know. Major feather in my cap, Phil yeah. Ransom. You know, it, was, it wasn't couched like a lot of compliments, but the attitude and the perspective was just, okay, this is a win. That was huge. Actually, it was a huge win because if I didn't feel comfortable in what you were doing and knowing that you were going to maintain my voice, <laughs> I would never have done that. Right. 
I would have struggled longer to get those chapters done instead of surrendering and saying, here, I trust you. Yeah. So it was a compliment, but it was also, it was a relief for me because I was trying to work, run a business, uh-huh. keep our house going, keep up with four little boys and still maintain my sanity while I'm trying to get this book done. Right. So it was a compliment for both of us. Yeah, so right. I was glad that you actually were up to the challenge <laughs> and it was worth it. Cause even now just reading the book, I can't tell which ones you wrote and which ones I wrote if I didn't know. Sweet. Good. So are you living your purpose, your life purpose? Yes. What is it and when did you realize what it was? It came about, it's it's the influencing people toward goodness, greatness, you know, fill in that how that last however you however you want to, but but knowing that I am having a positive effect on the people around me. Um, I remember in a grad course that I was taking in grad school, we had some personal studies we had to do about our giftedness, what we saw is where we were gifted. And at that point in time, I had two strong ones. One was teaching, one was administration. Um, you know, and I was very confident that both of those were strong. The That particular setup, they had an academian and they had a practitioner in each, leading each class. And the lead was the practitioner in this particular one. And he said, Phil, I've, I've read your pre-course work I've watched you for like several days in class now. And he said, I would like to suggest one more gift. So I am proud and 40. And somebody's telling me they think they see something new about me. I had to decide to accept it. Okay. And I said, sure. He goes, why do you teach? I said, well, it's for life change. I want them, you know, their lives to grow and develop. He said, granted, I know where you borrowed that. And the other one is um, I want to, I do the administration stuff to make it easier for all the volunteers that are helping me out. I want them to, you know, so that they don't feel like they have to do it all themselves. And he goes, and that, sir, is called encouragement. Oh, so I'm going to propose that encouragement is the little gear that drives those bigger ones. That's why you do what you do is to encourage people. So that would, that's when that, that light went on. And ever since then, it's do what you do to encourage people. Okay. How I treated you and your work, a big part of it was to encourage you individually in your practice, in woman work lawyer you know and so yeah I got paid for it but at the same time I'm still watching you know I love popping in on social media and just hey (laughs) uh, and I love you putting the link to Amazon for my book uh, in social media since technology is not my strong suit 
so to to encourage people along the way that's that's what it's about and yeah i'm doing that so it's kind of like being their cheerleader without being in their face as their cheerleader right mm -hmm. and if they give me the ability to or the permission to be their coach then i do that but sometimes you just want to come along and say nice job you know um through the month of December, I did some temporary work for a, a major food retailer down here. They were, the, the, uh, the COVID restrictions at the schools that some college kids went to and their own corporate quarantine policies left them with a huge void in their workforce. I had oh. the time, so I agreed to help them and they were paying 20 an hour and no anything, you know, so I can do that for a time. When that need came up, the kids were all back from school and they were back to normal. I went to one of the front end managers and I said, I have enjoyed working with you. I like the way you treat people. I wish there would have been a camera nearby because you could see his posture change. Get a little taller, shoulders uh, up. Yep, exactly. His whole energy changed. You know, got this. And Monday when I was shopping in that store, our paths crossed. How are you, man? You know, I just, it wasn't my responsibility, but I love doing it. And yeah. it doesn't, doesn't that make you feel good when you do things like that? Absolutely. You know, and it's kind of like when our kids were little or catch them doing something good or even my employees. I let people know I'm not on a strict schedule for employee reviews. I prefer to do them on a daily or weekly or whatever, a regular basis. When I see something I like, I tell you. When I see something I would like changed, I tell you. Yes. But I like to have the what I liked outweigh what I'd like to see changed. And it's the same thing with kids and just life's too short not to make somebody's day. That's right. That's right. Because those little random acts of kindness and building up somebody else are really what changed the world. That's right. That's right. So what people to, to, to smile when they see you coming, don't you? I love that. <laughs> There's you know, no that, that to happen, you know, that's a, a string of successes. Right? It's kind of like, I go to Qdoba. That uh, seems to be my go-to place these days for lunch. And there's this one guy that works there. And I try to be nice no matter where we go. And I joked with him and I told him, I like coming here because I don't have to wear a muzzle. I'll bet you appreciate me coming here without a muzzle because you can understand my order the first time without trying to guess what I said through the mask. Right. And we just kind of joked and and I, I'm very predictable in terms of what I want in my bowl at Qdoba. And one day I went, I met a friend for lunch there who doesn't eat at Qdoba very often. And this guy was working and he said, would you like some queso? And I'm like, well, I don't have queso in mine. He goes, so my friend was trying to decide, should I have queso or not? And he goes, 
let me give you a little and you can try it. Well, now I add queso to mine because it was really good. And I, I joked with him. I'm like, you're such a good salesman. Now I need to add that to my standard. Yep. So yesterday, Tony and I went there for lunch and he was, he came up because he was behind talking to a couple of other people. I think he's probably the manager is my guess. And rather than doing us one at a time, he took both of our things and shuffled them through the line. And he's like a bull, right? Yep. This kind of rice, right? Yep. And he knew my whole order in terms of what I wanted. And Tony's just a laugh. And I was like, um, honey, who do you think is going to be more memorable? And you're going to be willing to help somebody who comes through your line and they're very nice and social and happy and compliment you and encourage you or somebody who's crabby and just wants their food and get out of there. Good lesson. I'd rather have people joke with me when I walk through the line than something else. And mm -hmm. I think we're a lot of like that way, Phil. Yeah. It's always fun when people see you and their face just lights up. Yeah. Um, so we talked about the lockdowns during 2020 and you talked about going to work at the grocery store in December because of the, the COVID restrictions and the quarantine and the college kids. What's one of the biggest lessons that you learned during the lockdowns last year? I am still acting on it. But I learned I need to be just because my idea is a really good idea, and I know it is, does not mean that it has to work. Um, the things that we had rolling with Sid coming into 2020 looked so good and so strong. We were on an upward trajectory that was just amazing. Um, I spoke to 45 business people at Menasha at, um, I think I can say their name at, um, oh shoot, maybe I can't say their name. Well, you could, if you could remember at the moment, that's but where I, that's where I'm going. Anyway, it was just a corporate environment. Okay. Who did title town? The art, the construction company, Myron, Myron construction. Yeah. Okay. We're at their facilities. There were 45 people there. We had a really, really good time. We had a lot of leads come out of that. It's just that, that Fox Valley was ready for it. So I was there at the end of January, and we had several people who were in the process. And by the last of March, every one of them was closed down because either of restrictions on meeting sizes and facilities or financial wings saying we don't have the cash flow anymore we can't do this and they can't have to cancel out okay that was in march i should have by may or june said okay there's another way to do this but what i did instead in 2020 was i'm going to wait a little bit i'm going to wait a little bit 
And we scheduled probably three events locally, knowing that we could cancel up to a week beforehand without penalty. So I kept leaning into that. So you were hedging your bets. Yeah, it was just, okay, this is going to relax. This is going to relax and should have done sooner what we're doing now. Um, and that was that was an expensive lesson to learn in 2020. Um, so it sounds like the biggest lesson you learned is pivot early. Pivot earlier. Yep. Well, and I think no matter what business you're in or what you do, we all we always have to be constantly adjusting and watching what's going on and be on a a constant pivot because things are always changing. Uh And when you, and it's fun to wake up every day and say, okay, what's next? How are we going to tweak today? But I, I agree with you that 2020 was a huge eye-opening event for a lot of people and that there are a lot of businesses that had kind of been doing things. This is the way we do it. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're always going to do it. Don't you forget it. We are good. Right. Right. That was the mindset for a lot of us. Yep. Yep. And I'm sure the dinosaurs thought the same thing. (laughs) Mm-hmm. You know, horse and buggy, they probably thought the same thing. That's right. Probably figured the car when it came rolling down the street wasn't going to last. It won't last. This is a fact. I remember seeing years ago on a bus in this area, it was the week of the Harley Davidson rally where everybody comes to Milwaukee for that. Okay. And on the side of the bus, it said 95 years is not a fad. <laughs> be one long fat if it was but we do we get we get accustomed to okay we got it but the only one who really has it is up there that's right that's right and kind of our joke in our house is if you want to make god laugh tell him your plans tell your plans that's right and when it's going to be done right because right? it's always always on our time it's never on his that's why i write my dreams in ink and my the date in pencil there you go i like that i'm gonna write that one down too that's not mine but you can have it (laughs) well at least you recognize it's not yours but you know what you claimed it at the moment so thank you very much sure and one final question if you could just snap your fingers and change one thing in today's world without doing anything no work required on your on your side other than snapping your fingers to make it happen what would it be we need some absolutes again such as our culture in the last 40 50 60 years has pretty much taken absolutes out of the picture i am so tired of hearing that might be true for you. When we don't have absolutes, and I'm, I'm talking in broad context now, mm-hmm. if you don't have absolutes, you don't have effective ways of measuring success or failure. 
because there's no standard, no absolute standard. Just to be ridiculous, what, ha what would happen if we said 32 degrees is cold, but it's not necessarily freezing anymore? Or water boils at 211? Water, water boils some, somewhere between 207 and 215, water will boil. You know, it, it would affect us. And then we just, we need to have this is and this is not. This is and this is not. Um, and our, our culture is really, really suffering because those absolutes are gone. I have never thought about that. But that is so, so true. In a, in a broad context, okay. It'd be very refreshing, wouldn't it? Well, it's a clear line. It's certain things. You would know how close you came. You know, um, to be able to stand in a large group meeting and say, "I hear what you're saying, and I understand what you're saying, but you're wrong." You can't okay. do that anymore. I was going to say, "How dare you say that?" You know, everybody who thinks they're right is right now. And that is making life really, really confusing. We don't know where we are or why. So that's what I would change. I would return absolutes. Not 50,000 of them, but yeah. I like that. So Phil, thank you so much for your time today. And if you liked what you heard and you want to hear more people's stories, check out the Woman Warrior Lawyer podcast and Listen to people who have decided to live life on their terms because you can do it too. Thank you.